Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Amen. Well, good morning, everybody. Let's get to it. Mark chapter 14 is where we find ourselves this morning, working our way through, coming down to the end of our almost year-long study through the Gospel of Mark. We're going to look at Mark chapter 14, verses 32 through 52 this morning, and then next week, I'll be here, but William Richard Hawk, the fourth, (coughs) that's not true, he's not a fourth, I think he's just William Richard Hawk, will be preaching, finishing out chapter 14, and then... uh, couple weeks in Mark 15 and then Mark 16. So we'll finish the Gospel of Mark here um, probably in late September. And then we're going to pick up 1 Peter. We're going to work our way through 1 Peter. And we'll probably be in 1 Peter um, up to the end of the year. So you can maybe get a head start and and start to read 1 Peter. I've been doing that. Actually, one thing we're going to do that we used to do a few years ago, which we haven't done it in a while, and I think it'll be fun and encouraging, is that when we go through a shorter epistle in the New Testament, which sometimes are more apt for memorizing little portions of Scripture that just full of gospel truth packed into a couple sentences, um, I'm going to encourage you to try and memorize all or portions of Peter, and then maybe on given Sundays as we're working through First Peter, we might have a couple microphones on the floor and let you get up and just belt it out, you know, a couple verses in First Peter, maybe a whole chapter or something, I don't know, whatever, whatever just kind of hits you that day, so um, get ready for that. It's going to be great. Um, so let's get into Mark chapter 14. And if you're using one of the, the Bibles in the chair in front of you, you can find Mark chapter 14 if you're not used to looking up verses in the Bible, you can find that on page 851. And by the way, as we say every Sunday, if you don't have a Bible, you're welcome to keep that Bible and use it as your own and just let that be our gift to you. Well, here's my plan. I want us to work through this text and stare, just stare at the suffering and obedience of Jesus that we get a picture of in his agony in the garden as he's approaching the cross. I want us to stare at that, and then I want us to make some application to our life. So before I read, let me tell you about the summer of 1984. I was 13 years old in Southern California. I got a fellow uh, Mexican-American here. I'm, I'm actually not Mexican-American, but I thought I was till I was 12. I had kind of a Hispanic-sounding last name, and I grew up on the Mexican border. And do you guys know that there is a couple here? I'm not going to embarrass them right now, but there is another couple here. He's in the Army, and they are from El Centro, California, my hometown. We're taking over. We're taking over. Anyway, enough of that. But it was the summer of 1984, and I, um, my family... My dad bought tickets to the Summer Olympics in Los Angeles, and so we took a couple weeks off. My parents were both teachers, and we spent two weeks in Los Angeles. Since a very young boy, I have loved to watch and look at wonderful, skilled athletes or singers or performers or whatever. 
I've loved to look at them and watch them perform. And during this summer, during these two weeks in Los Angeles, I saw historic things in the Coliseum. In fact, um, I was in the Coliseum along with my brother and parents. Some of you are too young to remember this. Some of you weren't even born then. When the greatest American woman's distance runner, Mary Decker, in the final of the 3,000 meters was tripped up by this young barefooted South African girl named Zola Budd. And there's 100,000 people in the Los Angeles Coliseum as Mary Decker, who's a favorite for the gold, trips in the 3,000 meters and, and is out of the race. And 1,000 people stand up and gasp as they look at this race. I was in the stadium when Carl Lewis, one of my favorite all-time athletes, won four gold medals in the 200, the 100, the long jump, and the 4 by 100 relay. And I was there. We just had primo tickets right there at the finish line of the 100 meters when the fastest man in the history of the world up to that point won four gold medals. This beautiful, incredible athlete crossing the finish line and a thousand people longing to look at that incredible performance. And then towards the end of the Olympics, I was there in the forum in Los Angeles, my brother and I. We only had two tickets, and my dad was so good, he let my brother and I go. We were just two little pencil-necked teenagers, just let us go into this, this stadium of 18,000 people to forum in the gold medal basketball game when Michael Jordan was still in college in 1984, and Jordan, who moved like no other human being has ever moved on a basketball court, and my brother and I showed up like four hours before the game just so we could watch Michael Jordan in the layup drills because he moved so exquisitely, and we were there as close as security would let us get because we just longed to look at Michael Jordan move. You know what the Bible says about what we're going to read tonight, or this morning? It says in 1 Peter, as I've been reading through 1 Peter, that concerning salvation and the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent, subsequent glories, it says that these are things that angels long to look at. So imagine that. Imagine Imagine a thousand people in the Coliseum looking at Carl Lewis or, or several thousands of people in a basketball arena looking at Michael Jordan. Now imagine angelic beings looking at the sufferings and the subsequent glories of Christ, longing, standing up, rubbernecking, peering over shoulders, longing to look the very thing we're going to read about today. So let's do that. Let's long to look at the suffering and obedience and glory of Jesus in the garden. Let me pray. Lord, as we come to your text now, we pray for clear eyes and a warm heart to the beauty of Jesus. Stir our affections, Father, for the glory of Christ. For my friends in this room who are not yet trusting in him, whether they realize it or not, Lord, would you be so kind as to give them eyes to see so that they might trust in Jesus. Lord, I pray that you'd help us now think through this text and see Jesus 
and apply it to our lives. I pray these things in Jesus' glorious name. Amen. All right, let's pick up verse 32 of Mark 14. Coming down to the end now, Jesus has just had that last supper that we talked about last week with his disciples where he told Judas that he was going to betray him. And now we're in verse 32. And they went to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John, and he began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Well, let's stop there and make a few comments and notice a few things. First of all, this cup that Jesus refers to, the cup in Old Testament language was a symbol. Jesus is not speaking about a physical cup. He's speaking metaphorically about the wrath and justice of God. In fact, that's what the Old Testament, several times in Isaiah and in the Psalms, it would speak about God's cup. And it was always in the context of God being angry with his people or with another people group, saying that he will pour out the cup of his wrath, his vengeance, his anger on people that are, that are disobedient and rebellious. And so Jesus is... When he's speaking of this cup, he's speaking about he is approaching the cross, which is Jesus drinking from the cup of the punishment of God for sin. And that's what Jesus is speaking here. But here's something that I want us to, to notice is that isn't it interesting? Up until this point, it seems clearly Jesus has been in complete control of the events. He's predicting things. Remember last week he told him to go find this guy carrying a water jug and and when you see that guy, then go to the house that he goes into. That's where we're going to have the Passover meal. And a couple, couple weeks before, we looked at the beginning of the Passion Week where Jesus said, when we enter into Jerusalem, you'll see this guy with a donkey. So Jesus is in complete control. But yet here we see Jesus, we see him greatly distressed, troubled, sorrowful, even to death. So what's going on here? Did, did Jesus... Somehow, was he starting to stumble? Did he lack courage and fortitude? Because, I mean, when you think about heroes approaching their death, don't we actually kind of like to think of them in the opposite direction? You know, whether it's, you know, John Wayne in some World War II movie, you know, he gets up from the foxhole and charges across the, the battlefield and, you know, valiantly with seemingly no fear, no blink of an eye, just, just, you know, wins the battle or dies sort of heroically as a martyr. But yet with Jesus, what's going on here? It seems that is, is, he, is he lacking courage? Is he lacking fortitude? Is he somehow nervous about the physical pain of crucifixion? Clearly, I think the answer to that is no. So what is the cause of Jesus' distress? I think clearly the cause of Jesus' Distress is what he's speaking about with his cup. Jesus faced 
a pain and an agony that was far worse than any other human death. I mean, you know, hundreds of people were crucified by the Roman Empire during this time. And in the span of human history, people have died worse, if we can say that, more physically excruciating deaths than Jesus. So what, what is behind Jesus' agony? It is this cup, this cup of God's wrath. Jesus, in this Garden of Gethsemane, is getting a picture, a glimpse, a foretaste of the agony, the, not the physical agony, so much as the spiritual agony that awaited him. And that spiritual agony was that moment when Jesus would literally take on sin to the point where G God the Father in his holiness would turn his face and Jesus would cry out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So Jesus, this eternally preexistent God the Son, is looking forward to this moment of utter anguish where in eternal fellowship the Trinity now God the Father will look upon the Son and put the sin of all those who would ever trust on Jesus. That's the agony that Jesus is facing in this moment. This is what Jonathan Edwards, the great American pastor and writer said. He pastored in New England in the 1700s and he says of this, the sufferings of Christ, God, meaning God the Father, dealt with him, meaning Jesus the Son, as if he had been exceedingly angry with him and as though he had been the object of his dreadful wrath. This made all the sufferings of Christ the more terrible to him because they were from the hand of his Father whom he infinitely loved. It was an effect of God's wrath that he forsook Christ. This caused Christ to cry out once and again, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And see, this was prophesied. This isn't just sort of sneaking up on us here. This was prophesied hundreds of years before in Isaiah, Isaiah 53, that says that, that God lays on him the iniquity of us all. And it says that it pleased the Lord to crush the son. And ultimately we know that the pleasure there is because he knows that the Son is going to defeat and extinguish and satisfy his holiness and rise again in victory so that God can win a people for himself. There was no blind ignorance for Jesus here, and he is getting a picture of what he's about to face on the cross. And, and I just, this, there's no blind ignorance. I, you know, have you ever been through a very difficult experience and thought, boy, if I would have known what that was all about, I'd, I'd never have done that again. Some of you young guys that are going through ranger school or you're about to go through ranger school, if you knew what it was going to be like before, you'd probably say, nah, you know, I'm going to branch detail to something other than infantry. Little, little, little army talk for you there. But if you don't know, whatever it is that you're going to go through, there's a sort of blind ignorance, you know, but with Jesus, there is no blind ignorance to the cross. He, in the garden, is praying. He sees the agony that awaits him on the cross. And this holy, perfect being, Jesus, God the Son in the flesh, labors under the weight 
of what he approaches. Well, let's keep reading in verse 37. And he came and found them. So Jesus is praying in the garden. And then in verse 37, he came and found them, those three disciples. And he said to Peter, he found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, why are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing. The flesh is weak. And he's speaking there not of the Holy Spirit. He's speaking about the human spirit. You know, we want to do things. You know, like, yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to do this. But, but there's this flesh that drags us behind and is weak. Verse 39, and again he went away and prayed, saying these same words. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise. Let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Well, we could probably build out a whole message just on this interaction between Jesus and these three disciples and his grace to us even amidst our folly and our laziness and our dullness. But yet, let me just say here, rather than doing that, let me just say that when I read things like this, I am strangely <laughs> encouraged by the weakness of the disciples. Do you, do, you, do you guys get that sense too? I mean, over and over and over again, we see these guys making mistakes, not seeing it, falling asleep, not once, not twice, but three times. I find that remarkably encouraging. It tells me that Christianity, the gospel, God is for the dim-witted, the weak, the knuckleheads of the world. And, and thank you, brother. You and I are the only two here that are being spiritually honest and saying that we, I, I, when I see stuff like that, I'm like, yes, thank you. Thank you. Because I'm one of those cats. I mean, I, you know, I'm one of those guys. And Jesus doesn't slap them or fire them like Donald Trump does. He's firm but gracious with them. And he says, all right, boys, let's go. Let's get up. Come on, we got work to do. I'm strangely encouraged by that. And, and when we read things like Jesus, the Son of God, that Mark has been very careful to show us. Now, now, let's not forget the rest of the Gospel of Mark as we come down to the end. Remember who we're talking about here. We're talking about, remember how I said that, you know, I feel like I'm just like the circus clown that keeps climbing back in the cannon, like that's my only trick. I got one message here from the Gospel of Mark, and we're just shooting the cannon, and then the guy crawls back in the cannon, and we shoot it again. Well, it seems like the whole Gospel of Mark has been this one refrain, this one theme that Jesus is God the Son who has come to take away the sin of the world, and He is the King of the universe. And Mark is meticulous to show Jesus' authority. So he's, he's showing us in the beginning of the gospel that Jesus is sovereign over sin and sickness and disease, and that he's sovereign over the wind and the waves, and he's sovereign over the demons. He he exercises them, and he's sovereign over even the grave itself as he raises that girl from the dead. And yet, when we come to the end of the Gospel of Mark, we see this same powerful God in the flesh, Jesus the Son, distressed and sorrowful, dealing with knuckle-headed followers. 
Can I just submit to you that if you were trying to organize a new religion to try and catch, you know, to try and grow and to have people, you know, sort of a hook to get them to, this wouldn't be the sort of humansensical way of doing it. The fact that the Bible is full of this gritty, grim realism of the knuckleheads of the founders of the religion here in Acts and Jesus, the, 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 the fountain, the, the God in the flesh, being distressed is, is in itself a witness to the fact that this actually happened. Now you can believe, and many people do, that, that the people in the Bible, Jesus and all of his followers, were, were crazy or wrong. But I, I don't think it makes much sense to believe that what we have here is, is not actually a, a, a true record of what actually happened. Because you don't write, you can't make stuff like this up. You can't, you can't. And, and if you're trying to start a movement, you don't make the founders of that movement so gritty. You tracking with me? I, I'm, again, I'm strangely encouraged by that. If I were writing the Bible, it would be triumphalism. We'd be smashing people left and right, just slapping folks left and right, just pow. That's not, that's not the way it works, though. Which to me is a witness of the truth of the gospel in the scriptures. Verse 43. And immediately while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, the one I will kiss is the man. Seize him. And lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi. And he kissed him. And in the original language of the Greek there, that word kiss is like a real warm, affectionate kiss between two people that would really, you know, care for each other. A real brotherly affection type of kiss. And then he says this, sort of, this term of endearment, Rabbi. Notice just the juxtaposition of Jesus crying out, Abba, Father. And this term of endearment and closeness between the Son and the Father in all of its truth and beauty. And then this false term of endearment and affection of this treacherous kiss and this false sort of claim of rabbi. This is where we get the phrase in English, the kiss of death. Notice the cruel hypocrisy of Judas' affection and his respect. Jesus isn't just forsaken on the cross. Jesus forsaken by his friends that have followed him for three years. Verse 46, and they laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Now this is another one of those things that I'm like, well, wait a minute, what? The Bible just seems to just breeze past that, like, oh, no big deal. And in the Gospel of John, we get a little bit more detail about this, that it was Peter, and that Jesus picks up this dude's ear and just sort of puts it back on. <laughs> and, the, and the Bible just sort of like kind of ho-hum about it. Oh, yeah, whatever. I, I don't have anything for you there other than to just say someday when I get to heaven, I imagine I will be so overtaken with the glory of all that is that I will probably forget about this. But that's just something like, like all the cats that were around didn't just say, whoa, 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 can we rethink this? Are we sure we're doing the right thing? He just put a dude's ear back on. 
<laughs> I mean, that would give me pause to reconsider whether I was on the right side of the ledger. <laughs> but yet, doesn't it tell us something? Doesn't it tell us that, that that spiritual blindness is so thick? I mean, rather than just shaking our heads and saying, oh God, those guys were knuckleheads. I would have gotten that. I would have figured that one out. Isn't that also just a witness to how miraculous and how dependent we are on God to even see anything of the miracle and beauty and power of Jesus? Yeah, I, I, I think it is. Although I, I may ask that question, like, what, like what? You just put it back on? Did that, what did that, did that cat switch sides? Malchus, I think is his name. All right, where am I? I was just so caught up in that. What verse am I on here? Okay, verse 47, verse 48. And Jesus said to them, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day, I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me, but let the scriptures be fulfilled. And they all left him and fled. They all, all of his disciples. So Judas has betrayed him, and all of the disciples have, you know, they, they as we used to say, they got ghosts. They left, like they're gone. Like, you know, you're, you're in that fight, you know, and then the teacher shows up and boom, all of a sudden, the campus, the quad is empty. Hit the crickets chirping soundtrack. Jesus has nobody around him to help him. In verse 51 and 52, and many scholars, this is an interesting little couple sentences here. Many scholars think that this is actually Mark, the gospel writer Mark, who later becomes a ministry associate of Peter, writing himself into the story because he was there as a witness of these. Whether that's true or not, we don't know. But listen to verse 51 and 52. And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body. And they seized him, but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. I mean, that's fear. I mean, you you think of the commotion of that moment, Judas, this treacherous kiss of death. This cat gets his ear lopped off by Peter. Jesus picks it up, puts it back on. They seize Jesus. Everybody flees. Can you imagine the the chaos of the moment? Hey, are you with him? Were you with him? Were you with him? And this young man who's wearing nothing but this this cloth is grabbed by one of the guards, maybe seemingly to maybe to seize him too, you know, and rips off his clothes and he runs away naked. So, so, so I want you to picture, I want you to see what's going on here, and then we're going to make some application. Is we have two gardens in the Bible. We have the first garden where mankind, Adam and Eve, rebel and sin, and they go from being naked and unashamed to naked and ashamed. And then, then we have this garden of Gethsemane where you have, again, mankind failing and nakedness and shame and fear, but you have one man who is obedient and righteous, Jesus. So the Bible starts us off in a garden where there is the failure of one man, and here we have the climax 
of the story where Jesus is in the garden, but this man is obedient. This is what Paul writes. This is what Paul is basing his whole argument on in Romans. He writes this in Romans chapter 5, verses 18 and 19. Therefore, as one trespass or sin led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, meaning Adam's failure, so by the one man's obedience, meaning Jesus, the many will be made righteous. Notice that beautiful parallelism there. The failure of the garden in Eden, the success and the victory and the obedience of Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane. Okay, so here's what I think all of this is pointing us to. Here's just this one main point that I want us to see that Jesus is looking at. He's peering into, and we're going to spend the next couple weeks thinking about the cross and what Jesus suffered. And I think this, this scene in the garden is peering ahead to this, to this cross where Jesus did this, this work on the cross for his people and bore God's wrath and secured salvation. This is what I think the main point of the next few chapters of Mark are. And it is that Jesus suffered and obeyed in our place for our sins to satisfy God's righteousness and turned his wrath into his gracious favor towards us. So I think that's what this is peering into. That's what the next few chapters of Mark are about. That's what the whole Bible ultimately is all about. That Jesus, God the Son in the flesh, suffered and obeyed, took our punishment, achieved our obedience in our place for our sins to satisfy God's righteousness and holiness, extinguished it, took it away, and turned that wrath and judgment into gracious favor toward us. Now, when I use that language, us, I I want you to know that, that I may not be speaking about you if you have not trusted in Christ yet. So, so don't just assume that just because you're here or you're hearing these words in sort of a, a, a possessive plural way, or I don't even know if that's the right grammatical term, that it just applies to you just because you're in this room or because you grew up in the South or because, you know, your, your grandma gets a bulletin from some church or something and, you, you know, you went to VBS once. This applies to those and only those who are trusting in Christ. And I pray today that if you are not trusting in Christ, you might see Jesus in all of his beauty and that you too would trust in Christ and that this would be true of you. All right, so a couple points of application and then we'll be done. Because Jesus suffered and obeyed, that's the phrase. That's what I want us to see. It's what Jesus is peering into in the garden. Because Jesus suffered and obeyed on the cross, in the garden and on the cross, these things are true of us. One, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And friends, this is not rocket science here. This is just, this is just clear from the scriptures. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, if you have been in church for a while, or maybe you've been a Christian for a while, you may know that. I'm sure you've heard that before. That's Romans 8, 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But, but I want us to think about this, because we, it, it is so easy to get lulled to sleep 
with temporary and trivial needs and lose sight of what our ultimate great need is, which is right standing with God. So I just made, I started to think about all the things that I think I need. I need to rent a walk-behind bush hog and clear out some property of mine. And I've been thinking about that a lot behind. I've got a bunch of weed stuff growing up. I need to do that. I need, I feel like I could lose about five pounds and get in a little bit of better cardiovascular shape. I need to eat better. I need to stop eating Cheetos at 11.30 at night and relieving my stress through comfort food and waking up with a headache mad at the world. I need to, thank you, brother. I need to do that. I, I, you know, I need to think a little bit more about my four children's college education, and I think I need to be a little bit more intentional about putting away some money for them to college, and since one of them's in here right now, get good grades so you can get a scholarship instead of daddy having to pay for college. But anyway, I need to think more wisely about that. You know, I need, I need, I, I think it's been a few more than 3,000 miles since I've gotten the oil changed and the tires rotated in Jennifer's van. And so sometime here in the next couple weeks, I I have to arrange my schedule so that I can take her van to get the tires rotated and the oil changed, right? There's this little place in the back of the overhang of our porch, this little soffit that was replaced and it's not painted. And so it's just exposed wood. And I'm thinking I need to paint that with outdoor paint so that that wood doesn't, doesn't rot away. There's this little patch of grass in the back that needs to be mowed and cleaned up. My deck, the wood in my deck is, is really kind of getting old and some of the boards are coming up and there's a nail sticking kind of a little screw and I, there's a, Abraham might trip and bust his lip and you know, oh my gosh. So I need to, I need to work on replacing my deck and there's in my garage there's a couple things that I want to do we got some stuff that's just kind of hanging out there and I I need to paint and then a couple years ago we got a new washer and dryer and moved it into our washing room but it was just a little too big to get into the frame so I busted out the little threshold thing on the frame and I've let that for three years sort of that exposed wood that's all kind of jacked up going I need to get that or get somebody that knows how to fix that stuff into my house to fix that I need to do that like I need to do that I need there's a thousand little things I need to do and what can happen is that we can be thinking about all the temporary necessary but temporary and sometimes trivial things that we need to do and it lulls us to sleep from the ultimate thing that we ultimately need which is right standing with God and then we read because our heart is so cluttered with all of these temporary needs that when we come to the heart of the gospel that Jesus has taken away our condemnation that he has appeased the holy righteous wrath of God who is against our sin turned it into favor it can become just sort of ho-hum and so the most important thing becomes ho-hum and the trivial temporary thing becomes urgent friends that's why Christians need to gather every week and hear the gospel. They need to hear it again and again and again. Don't be the type of Christian who thinks you're past the gospel and this glorious truth. And because Jesus suffered and died on the cross, there is, therefore now, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Let me read from our older brother, Charles Spurgeon. Oh, this is one of his best. Come on now. He preached this sermon on April 5th, 
1857 at his church in London. It was a sermon called Justified by Grace. Listen to this. About the cup that Jesus drank from. Dry on our behalf. The whole of the punishment of his people was distilled into one cup. No mortal lip might give it so much as a solitary sip. When he put it to his own lips, it was so bitter, he well nigh spurned it. Let this cup pass from me. But his love for his people was so strong that he took the cup in both his hands and at one tremendous draught of love, he drank damnation dry for all his people. He drank it all. He endured all. He suffered all so that now forever there are no flames of hell for them, no racks of torment. They have no eternal woes. Christ hath suffered all they ought to have suffered, and they must, they shall go free. <laughs> because Christ suffered and obeyed in the garden and the cross, there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Second application. Again, this is not rocket science. Our identity is now in Christ. It has fundamentally transferred us in our spiritual location to being in the world, in sin, separated from God, to now being in Christ. Now, I know that this, this whole identity language, I think, kind of gets overplayed in the American church. Not that you can say it too much, but I think it, it sort of becomes a sort of self-absorbed, sort of like, becomes kind of a veiled sort of um, kind of esteem grab, that we just want to feel better about ourselves. And so I think we lose the biblical power of this word of being in Christ, identity, having our identity, identity in Christ. So let me, let me just help us, I think, think about this a little bit more biblically. When we trust in Christ, our identity fundamentally changes. And we all instinctively understand the power of the appeal to our identity as as being the fundamental thing from which we act, right? So, so I'm sure many of us have had this conversation with our father when we were a teenager and acting like a knucklehead, and your dad sat you down and he says, that's not who we are. You know, you're a Jones or you're a Smith or Robert Ward just found out that he's going to have a little baby boy named Quentin, and I imagine sometime in the next decade or so, or maybe a little bit more, when little Quentin is 15 years old and he's acting like a knucklehead, not because he's got bad parents, but because he's a human, Robert Ward's going to sit him down and he's going to say, Q, that's not who we are. <laughs> You're a ward, boy. <laughs> I mean, come on, we all, we all instinctively know this. I grew up in the house of football coaches. I've heard this halftime speech a thousand times, and I've repeated it myself. In fact, a few years ago, my son Jacob started playing football at the River City Youth Football out there at Britt David, and, and his first year he was playing on the Cowboys. And then after you play on one team after the end of the season, there's no guarantee that you're going to get back on that same team again. And so the group of coaches, we switched. And this particular, his second year, we were coaching the team, the Broncos, right? And in the middle of one drill, I said to this little kid who had been on us with the Cowboys the year before, and now we were the Broncos, I appealed to identity, and I said, look here, man, that's not how we play here. We play cowboy football. I mean, I mean, Bronco football. <laughs> we appeal, don't we all? We appeal to identity 
which then informs how we act. But don't let football coaches and dads convince you. Let the scriptures convince you. Let me go to Colossians chapter 3, verse 1. Listen to these words. The Apostle Paul speaking about the implications of our identity because of what Jesus has done. Colossians 3, verse 1. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, Seated at the right hand of God, set your mind on things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. For Listen to verse 3. This is important. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. So you are now folded into, you're tucked in Christ, and you're in God. Verse 4, when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will appear with him in glory. So Paul is saying that your identity has fundamentally changed. You are now hidden with Christ in God. Now listen to verse 4. Here's the speech. This is what Paul says now. Because of that, then this should happen in your life. Verse 4. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry on the count of these things. The wrath has got its wrath of God is coming in these you two once walked when you were living in them and he goes on to say but now you're not living in them so be who you are you see that becomes the fountainhead of of our life it's it's this great indicative imperative that we we've been reading about in in the gospel that the gospel always starts with this is who you are And as a result of that, this is how you should live. That's the gospel. Whereas religious legalism says, this is how you should live if you want to win God's favor. Do you see the difference between the two? One is legalism that kills. The other is the gospel that gives life. This is who you are, and because of that, this is how you can now live. Not this is how you must live, and if you hit the good meter enough, then maybe Jesus will accept you. That's not the gospel. Our identity is now in Christ. Number three, because Jesus suffered and died, we can fight sin by pursuing joy. Did you catch what Dave Baum read at the beginning of our service for our call to worship? A very important logic there in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. I'll read it again. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, Let us also lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. Listen to this now. Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. So as Jesus is staggering, deeply distressed, sorrowful even to the point of death, in, in, a, in an immediate sense, willing that the cup would pass from him? How did Jesus, the man, endure that temptation to press the abort mission button? How did he do that? By looking ahead to the joy that was set before him. And so now we see, we can see that, and we now are free to fight sin by pursuing joy. Jesus did not act on his immediate desire 
to have this cup pass, he put more weight in the ultimate desire, which is the joy of being the victor for his people. And friends, that becomes the pattern that we have now as Christians to fight sin. And I know I mention this a lot, but, but I think it bears repeating that men, we do not fight sin by gritting our teeth and saying, oh, I'd really like to have that. And God is like this mean grandpa who won't let me have fun, but I know it might send me to hell, so I'm going to grit my teeth and bear it and just try and fight it. Because be good. Tuck in your shirt, comb your hair, and be good. That sort of moral resolve will never, it never lasts. Oh, there, there are some that are maybe more strong among us who that might last for six months. But, but at some point, that's going to wear down. But when you, when you see how Jesus fought sin and disobedience and temptation by pursuing the greater joy and not giving in to the immediate lesser joy or in our context, the sin, the broken pleasure, he fought and endured by pursuing joy. That has a thousand different applications. I think one of the most prominent is, is that even in our covetousness and our lusts, as we look at something that is so attractive, what we know is ultimately deadly for us or destructive, we can say no to that thing by saying yes to the greater way in Christ. And four, I end with this is that because Jesus suffered and obeyed, we too can endure suffering in this world, in this life. There's an important distinction to make here. Jesus suffered for our justification to make us right with God, to absorb God's punishment for sin, and to turn it into favor and grace eternally for all those that would ever trust in Christ. He suffered for our justification, for our salvation. We now suffer in this life not for our, or to hold on to our right standing, but for our sanctification, for our growth in Him, right? And if we mix those two up, we get into all sorts of problems. We start to think that, that, that our salvation is dependent on us sort of you know, it, it depends on our holding upon Christ rather than Christ holding upon us. And that can get us into all sorts of man-centeredness that is terribly troubling for the Christian faith. Now, Jesus suffered for our justification, and now we endure the trials of this life for our sanctification. So let me just give you a twofold purpose of suffering that I see in the Bible. One, one reason we suffer in this in this life is because of just our knuckleheadedness, our folly, our sin, right? We still do that, don't we? We got any people in here that are Christians that still sort of struggle with stupidity? Me and Scotty are the only guy. You're the only guy that agrees with me on anything that has, you know, anything to do with us being jacked up. So you and I, we're going to start a crew, the jacked up crew, while everybody else is. No, but you, I'm being silly. You know what I'm talking about. We, 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 God treats us like a good father. Hebrews chapter 12 says that he chastens them, those whom he loves. So there is a suffering here in this life that, that God brings about in our life because it's a consequence for our remaining folly. And God, being a good father, is chastening in us. He's disciplining us to show us that that is not good for us. But then there's also a, a, a suffering in this life that 
that just has to do with us living in a fallen world and having to do with the fact that we have an enemy who wants to kill and destroy us. And friends, that type of suffering is an opportunity not to justify ourselves because Jesus has done that once and for all. But when we suffer at the hands of a fallen world and an enemy that is against us, that is an opportunity for us to display the surpassing worth of Christ to an onlooking world. And so when we, when we because Jesus suffered and obeyed and conquered, friends, now we have the privilege to now when we suffer either know that we're being disciplined by a good father who has our best at his heart in his heart or to realize that in this moment when i am suffering i have this beautiful privilege to display to an onlooking world that jesus is better than these 80 years he's better than perfect health in this life he's better than prosperity in riches in this life that moth and rust destroy. He's better than all of these things that fade away. Do you see that? And when we, when we, when we see Jesus suffering, this becomes like motivation. And we, we peer into this suffering and obedience of Jesus. And it fuels the Christian life. So there's this beautiful domino effect of staring at Jesus' suffering and obedience. The angels long to look at it. And when we look at it, it warms our heart. It causes us to worship. It softens our hearts so that we can submit to his ways. It drowns out the lie that God does not want our joy and pleasure. It makes us more satisfied with our right standing before a holy and righteous God, and it gives off an aroma to an onlooking world. And just like in anything that happens, when we see a bunch of people looking at something we all kind of want to look to, when we look with the angels, when we long to look into the beauty of Jesus, it becomes an aroma to an onlooking world. Christians, let's look at Jesus afresh. Friends that are in this room who have not yet trusted in Christ, I plead with you, look to the only one who can satisfy. Consider Jesus, who endured and suffered for the joy of reconciling you to your creator God. Look away from yourself and look to Jesus, even now. Let's pray. Father, I confess that it is one thing for me to preach these things with passion and it is another thing for me to try and live these things out. As I have been 
extolling these great truths, there is a whisper in my soul that every now and again cries out, hypocrite. So I thank you that even hypocrites like me can look to Jesus. I need my soul to be more satisfied with the beauty of Christ than this world, than with financial security or ministry success or a thousand different other competing competing needs and wants and desires. And I need my soul to look to Jesus afresh and how need it again next Sunday. In fact, I'll need it by two o'clock this afternoon. I will be in need of reminding. By four o'clock, I'll need to be reminded. Monday morning, I'll need to be reminded. The, the difficult conversation on Thursday, I'll need to be reminded of who I am in Christ and who Jesus is and how beautiful and satisfying that is. So, Lord, would you do that for not just me, but my friends in this room? Would you turn up the volume of the gospel song? And would it crowd out the white noise of this life? And then would it strangely make us more useful? (laughs) More useful for your glory as others look at our lives in light of our longing for Jesus. Father, for my friends in this room who are not yet trusting in Christ, would you, would you give them eyes to see so that they would look away from themselves and look to Jesus and trust in him, repent of their sins, and believe in Jesus, what he did. Lord, I pray that you do these things for our good for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Friends, let's all stand. If you're